This is Chris Carlock. You are listening to Your Rights at Work with me, Chris Carlock, and, as always, Ed Smith. This is the show. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy, Ed. About your rights on the job, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had. You can call us. It's a call-in show. Your questions about worker rights, what's that number, Ed Smith? Hey, give us a call. First of all, hi, hi everybody. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mike. Hey, hey. You can give us a call if you want to talk about any of your work-related problems, and we'll try to help you solve them or just give you some advice. 202-588-0893. Please give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. It is one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why we have this show. Absolutely. Again, this is Your Rights at Work, and so if you want to know about your rights on the job, give us a call, 202-588-0893. Got a great show for you. We're going to do a little bit of labor news headlines for you. Got some things to check in on. Also, the AFL-CIO released their 30th annual death on the job report. It is not good. I'll just say that at the top. Also, the D.C. Labor Course has got their annual spring concert coming up this Saturday. We're going to visit with longtime member James Williams in just a bit. And Nico Belitza from D.C. Jobs with Justice, he's going to drop by, give us an update. There was a virtual rally for the Essential Workers Bill of Rights last night. Going to hear a little bit more about that. And we'll wrap up with a visit with Gabriel Winnett. He's the author of... The next shift, the fall of industry and the rise of healthcare in Rust Belt America. Ed, that one's just for you, baby. All right. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting him and hearing uh, some good uh, information. Absolutely. Now, before I get to some uh, new headlines, news headlines, and Mike says my, my mic sounds hot. Let me, I got a new mic here, Ed. It's a, it's a blue something or other, and I got a, I got volume. I got, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff, so I can probably turn it down. Let me back off on it a little bit. I don't want to blow blow the show out of the water here. And uh, and you've got you've got something from the, from your favorite newspaper, the Washington Post. I sure do. So every year, I believe there is something called Star Nurses, which is uh, uh, done by um, uh, in partnership with the American Nurses Association, and, and each year, uh, oh, about uh, fifty or so nurses are. Uh, selected as a star nurse for the year. And, and um, I wanted to note one of our uh, uh, stars in DCNA, Laverne Plater. Hey, Laverne. All right, all right, all right. She's one of our leaders, and she works in the Department of Behavioral Health over at St. Elizabeth. She uh, was one of the uh, nurses selected, and we had a number of nurses from Children's also selected. So I really wanted to give a shout-out, and we'll probably – publish that in our newsletter um, that we put out every month. So congratulations, Laverne, and our children's, great children's nurses. But of course, I'm sure that every one of the members of the D.C. Nurses Association is a star in your eyes, Ed Smith. 
I hope so. You know, it's a tough <laughs> job. It's a tough job, and you know, we talk about heroes over the past year and a half, and uh, uh, they really are. They do great, great work. And you know, I don't know if you heard what's happening at UMC the other day. Hit me, hit me. So the council, in its wisdom, decided it was not going to. The mayor had actually sought extra money for UMC to keep it operating. It's been having a lot of problems, as you know. And the council refused to uh, uh, agree to the supplemental, uh, the added uh, amount to the subsidies by a vote of seven to six. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's a cliffhanger so, right there. So we will now be fighting this emergency legislation. So they needed nine votes. They only got six. Um, so we'll be fighting. And hopefully uh, when we get it back to the council on non-emergency uh, basis, we can win this. But, uh, yeah, de very devastating. We were taken by surprise on the vote. We thought that the money would be there, um, but we'll talk about it obviously more. Just wanted to give you a heads up out there, audience, and wanted to give my brother Chris a heads up on that. All right, all right. Well, stay tuned, folks. Any and all things related to working people, you know, your rights at work is the place to tune to. So, again, uh, if you've got questions about your rights on a job or, uh, again, anything sort of labor work related, we can uh, certainly take your call. 202-588-0893 is how you reach us. On um, a more, even more serious matter, Ed, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the AFL-CIO has been doing this uh, death on the job report. This is the 30th annual report. just came out uh, Tuesday, uh, a week mm. after the 50th anniversary of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Now, here is the good news, Ed Smith. Uh, OSHA, which obviously pushed very strongly by organized labor, helped cut deaths on the job from nine per 100,000 workers. That was 30 years ago. Now it's down. Well, actually, let me uh, let me ask you. What do you uh, and you don't know this? I don't think because this is uh, this. Is, I didn't tell you anyway. <laughs> Maybe you know. So it was nine per one hundred thousand workers thirty years ago. Folks, if you know, give us a call two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. Ed, what's your guess? What do you think it is? How many 3. per hundred thousand? Three point five. Oh wow! Somebody's been reading the press release. Very good. No, I didn't. No, really? you just My know that. Well, you know what? I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't ask you questions about healthcare stuff because you're just going to know. Actually, it was a total guess. It was a total guess. So is that right? That is exactly right. Was a three, 3.5, not, you know, 3 or 3. Holy moly. <laughs> That's how good Ed get, Smith is. Give my bell. I'm getting Give myself a, a bell. That is amazing. Good for you, Ed Smith. But you're exactly right at 3.5 per 100,000. So that's the good news. Obviously, cut it by two, almost two-thirds. Uh, but that's, you know, that's still a lot. And here is, here's the bad news, Ed. It is stalled at that level. So obviously it was, you know, getting better, getting better. Uh, but it stalled that level. Uh, and, and you're never going to guess what year it stalled. 2020. 2017. Remember who 2020. took office in 2017. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Right. And, and here is the other thing. And I'm throwing a whole lot of numbers out here, which I'm not real good at. But so 3.5 per 100,000, that, that actually doesn't sound too bad, especially, you know, been dealing with all these pandemic deaths and so forth. But what that translates into is 275 workers a day dying from hazardous working conditions. So that is just I, bad word I can't use on the radio, but it's bad. Well, and, right? you know, and, you know, COVID certainly didn't um, 
no. help the situation. And there have been many, many, many healthcare workers and essential workers that have passed. And I know our national union tracks healthcare worker deaths and, and, and um, contractions of the uh, virus. Well, and to your point, uh, Liz Shuler, uh, AFL-CIO Secretary Treasurer, she's been on the show before uh, when they unveiled the report. Uh, she pointed out, as you're saying, that those figures actually understate the kit. Uh, something about something like 95,000 workers a year die from occupational illnesses. And as I think we've talked about before, the, the point is, uh, a lot of folks, what happens when you die from occupational illnesses, it's not when you die, not, not like when you die, for example, uh, you know, in a, in a workplace, you know, so, you know, you're, you're uh, in the construction industry, good example, construction industry, very, very dangerous people uh, dying in the construction industry. And when you die there, you tend something falls on you, you fall into something, right. you know, you, you, right. you die essentially on the job, right? But with occupational uh, illnesses, which you know well, being a DCNA, you can contract something oh, like, like say, black lung, if you're a minor. Well, you don't die of black lung that day. It's not like a minor right. even. It can be, what, 30, 40 years, something like that? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And now you think about COVID, and um, you may not die from COVID, but you might have a um, an exacerbating condition that uh, COVID uh, brought brought forth to the fore and and who knows uh what what we're going to see in in the in the years to come with that um so it's uh you know there's still a lot a lot of work to do um fortunately ocean now has a little bit more teeth under the current administration than it did under the prior administration um and uh so hopefully we will continue to pressure uh state governments city governments to make sure that there's health and safety on the job it's probably it's one of the top things we do. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and as you point out, I mean, you know, there, there's some good news. You know, we have a new administration, which is much more proactive, much more uh, reactive and working with labor. So that's a good thing. But this is a huge problem. And the pandemic has really, as with so many other things, uh, underlined the problems. And, and one of those being... Uh, the illness and death, uh, no surprise, are disproportionately hitting workers of color. Right. So, you know, this is affecting all workers, let's be clear, uh, but disproportionately affecting uh, workers of color who are bearing the brunt, just like, you know, with the essential workers and everything else. So uh, you're, you're probably seeing, uh, your, your nurses, I would think, are probably seeing this, this sort of stuff, right, Ed? Well, yeah. In, in the end, um, you know, it comes down often to money. Um, a lot of corporations will sacrifice um, safety and health if if they do a cost benefit analysis or an insurance company does a cost benefit analysis rather than implementing something that might cost a lot of money they'll look and see okay how much money does it cost and how much money are we going to lose if we get lawsuits from people uh, uh, challenging health and safety issues it reminds me similar similarly of uh car companies not making a change in, in um back in the day of, of equipment that they knew uh, was defective and mm -hmm. they would not make the change and they would have their insurance people run cost benefit analysis so it's 10 million to make the change uh, you know recall all these cars and maybe at most we're going to get six seven million 
dollars in lawsuits that we're going to have to pay. So let's not make the change. And that was pretty well established in the 80s and 90s, I believe. Well, here's an interesting thing that I, I shouldn't say it surprised me because, honestly, nothing surprises me any, anymore. But <laughs> another thing covered in this report, uh, the death on the job, actually, the full name is Death on the Job, the Toll of Neglect. Uh, and that's on the AFL-CIO website, aflcio.org, said that, quote, employer reporting of COVID-19 uh, cases is still mandatory only in a few states with specific mm. standards or orders. And, and I got to say, that does kind of surprise me. You would think that that would be sort of standard operating procedure across the country, but apparently not. No, uh, you know, and it, it's similar again. We talked about hospitals that don't, always report uh, adverse incidents to the Board of Nursing um, and, and talk about their own problems in, in public. They don't want to show that they have problems in a particular department or anything because they want patients to come. I mean, they still run it like a business. So if hospitals are being run like a business and, and trying to protect their own uh, skin, if you will, look, what about any other industry? Restaurants, hotels, I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to willingly disclose their own weaknesses because that's for the bottom line. It doesn't help them. But it's just so weird. Like for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, you know, all labor folks, you know, you know they do know about yeah. that. But it says that they're, they're just not going to produce COVID-19 estimates, right? There's this thing, the SOI, the Survey of Occupational Illnesses, uh, Illnesses and Injuries, uh, relies on OSHA record-keeping requirements. Uh, and employers are supposed to, uh, you know, record certain work-related injuries and illnesses on their logs, uh, but that's not necessarily going to be captured there. And so it kind of reminds me of the stuff with COVID. Like, well, if we don't test, then we can keep our numbers down. It's like, well, yeah, but people right. are still dying. People are still getting sick just because you're not testing, does it? You know what I'm saying? It's just sort of wishful thinking, right? Right. I mean, you, you hide the news, right? You hide the news and it makes it, it makes it look better. And, uh, you know, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, it's, it's, this is not something unusual. And like you said, it doesn't surprise us, mm, but mm, it is, mm. but it is surprising. And it's, and it's, and it's disappointing, disappointing. I think very, it is. Yeah, very disappointing. Yeah. And in many respects, I would say devastating because it only exacerbates uh, the issue. All right, folks. Well, uh, we've got, again, we've got a link. Note. <laughs> on that note, yeah, no, I, I was trying to look for sort of a, a positive way out, but I got, I got nothing. I got nothing. Well, we went, from nine, we went from 9 to 3.5 in 30 years. Maybe, so that's there, maybe that's another that. 30 years we'll be down to 1. Okay, that's the goal here. All right, but I do have something great, which is uh, there is a concert. It's the annual concert by uh, our wonderful friends at the D.C. Labor Chorus. Uh, uh, listeners to this show and this station, of course, knows Elise Bryant, uh, the longtime founder and director of the chorus. Uh, and uh, we are going to have a visit with James Williams from the course, but to set that up, uh, Magic Mike has got a little clip for us. So, Mike, let's let's roll that, and then we'll we'll go from there. We did not come this far to give up now. Days of old behind the freedom plow. I have this faith deep in my heart somehow. 
did not come this far to give up now. Wonderful DC Labor Chorus, and we are ja uh, joined right now by uh, one of the bases in that chorus, James Williams. James, so good to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. That is just such a gorgeous song. Uh, we are going to have a link uh, so you can hit, check out the whole thing. Uh, it's just beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, and the interesting thing I was thinking about this, James, is that y'all have been having to practice on. Uh, Zoom, that video is on Zoom. I remember when you first started a year ago, there were some technical issues with singing together on Zoom, right? Well, even that particular recording had its own um, technical problems. We're not quite in sync. It was <laughs> our first attempt to trying to do that. But all you know, given all that we did and what we know in, in terms of our, uh, our techniques and everything, our, our technical um, expertise, I, it's not bad, not bad. It gives you I a good idea of what we sound like. I, I love it. I love it. I, and, I, and I just, and I, I don't know if this stuff was out of sync or if it was intentional, but it sounds gorgeous to me. And and uh, we have to say, we got to give a, a shout out, uh, our good friend Steve Jones, uh, you know, as always, just, just uh, you know, because I, I heard that, James, and, and it's just got, Steve has this ability to write songs that sound like they've been around forever, right? That that He wrote that, but it sounds to me, I was like, oh, they must have been singing back, that back in the 60s, right? Um, he started right yeah, back in the 60s. He and his brother, Peter. Don't forget uh -huh. Peter. Don't forget. Yeah. No, no, we can't forget Peter. Right. The, Jones, the Jones brothers. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. And we have some other luminaries. Um, we, of course, you, you mentioned Elise. We also have Ken Giles as well. Um, and of course, Lucy Murphy, of course. Oh, my God, of course, Lucy, okay. yeah. So, and in fact, she recruited me to join the um, labor chorus. Well, it's an amazing. Well, James, how long have you how long have you been with the labor courts? I'll be closed in on six years in November. Mm -hmm. This November. So you're a rookie. I'm a rookie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite a, a baby because we do have some babies that are like maybe four or five months into the chorus, and unfortunately Excellent. the pandemic hit. But um, yes, I'm still a rookie. I consider myself a rookie. What what got you into it, James? Um, I've always, like any. Uh, any person who likes to sing, you know, in the shower, that's me. I sing in the shower. I like to have, <laughs> yeah. And I always wanted to sing with my church chorus, but I never got the opportunity because my, when I joined the government, I was pretty much traveling a lot overseas. So when I came back, I still wanted to do something like that. And a friend of a friend introduced me to Lucy and here I am six years later. Well, let me, uh, Tell, tell us, folks, a little bit about the the chorus. I mean, it's it's not a it's it's kind of it's open to it's it's a community chorus essentially. Right. right? I was going to tell you that it's it it is a community chorus, and what we mean by that, we have those who are professionals: um, Elise, Steve, Ken, um, Peter, the Jones brothers, um, Lucy, um, have performed on stage with professionals, are professionals, um, and then there's people like me who struggle to carry a tune. But the key to the chorus, because it is a community chorus, is harmony. Um, and we work, we work very hard on harmony. Even me, who I'm not trained to read music, I, they've taught me uh, in the few sessions that we have, um, uh, where we would normally meet, we usually meet at the um, Washington Ethical Society, but of course, with the pandemic, um, 
we we don't do that, and, and not until um, the science and Dr. Fauci says we can get back together again, we won't be doing that. Um, but we are thinking about figuring out ways this summer um, uh, to meet outside someplace and mm-hmm. try to get back together again because we're all chomping at the bit to get back together <laughs> because you can't get the true harmony over over video like this. You just can't. So. Um, what what got me into it was I always really wanted to sing. And when I think it was Lucy that said to me, you know, anybody can sing. And as a matter of fact, we, there's a song we sing. It's in, I think it's in Swahili. It says, if you can dance, you can walk. And if you can talk, you can sing. <laughs> and we actually sing a song that that's, it's in Swahili that says that. And in and, and reality, it's true. I found it to be true. Because the harmony will come if you if you they put me next to Ken Giles and who's our I, I call him my our senior bass and um, you know magic just comes out of my mouth. Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, we're talking with James Williams, who's from the uh, D.C. Labor Chorus, and of course my co-host Ed Smith is uh, in addition to being executive director at the D.C. Nurses Association, he's got a band. Although I, I think you haven't been able to play out in the last year, but point is you're both singers and i was thinking that you know that you know back in the day before we had recording technology you know everybody had to sing you there was no other way for music to happen and that there's been you know just this real drift away from folks you know doing singing themselves because you can just you know it's all it's all out there on the web you know on spotify youtube whatever but at the same time, it seems like there's also a real flowering uh, of, of, you know, whether it's a D.C. labor chorus or a band like yours. That, I don't know. Let me kick it over to you, see if you got some thoughts. Well, I do. And, and it's, I'm really appreciative to have James here. And it's good to see your face and get to meet you a little bit. I was thinking about uh, what you said and um, about harmony. And I remember years and years ago, my dad, God rest his soul, uh, had a horrible voice and i remember playing some songs in my bedroom and telling them to come on in dad mom come on in and sing sing harmony with me oh no I, i'm not going to do that and i did an old rolling stone song sympathy for the devil and got him to do the woo woo parts if any of you know that song <laughs> woo woo well instead of him going woo woo i had him go woo 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 and he hit spot on and because it doesn't take a lot of range but there's a spot for everybody, and that's the beauty of singing and the beauty of harmony. Um, and, and by the way, Chris, I actually was able to play a outdoor uh, free show for our neighbors this past Sunday with two nice. of my brothers in my band, uh, Judge Smith. And, um, uh, and I think like 90% of the people there had been vaccinated uh, twice, um, and there's a number of little kids. So it was really fun. Um, we still, of course, practice uh, definitely social distancing. Um, even among the band, we were pretty far apart. Uh, but it was a joy. I hadn't played with these guys since uh, October. Um, and uh, But, James, I hear that you have something really fun coming up this weekend, I believe, the 8th. Is that right? That is correct. We have the D.C. Labor Course 23rd Annual Spring Sing-Along Concert. It starts at 7.30 p.m., and you can register up until 6.30 this Saturday. 
So those of you who want to hear us sing or do the best we can, <laughs> given the format that we're using, yeah. uh, please join us. That's a tough format, man. Um, yeah. uh, so I do a thing every Saturday. It's a Facebook live show from a bunch of us that used to live together up in Boston in a group house. And there was a bunch of musicians. And when somebody would leave, another person would come in. And so over, over the years, there was about eight, nine of us. And now we have about 10 to 12 people, but we each do 15 minute segments. We don't sing together. And I've seen some of these zoom ones with some of these top professional bands doing this. And it just seems to me, I the technology really blows me away. I don't know. How, I don't know how they, how they, uh, you know, perform together. And then bands that have bass, drums, guitar, uh, keyboards, you know, to me, it seems it's, it's out of my, it's out of my pay grade to do the technology, but how is that, how is that, um, what obstacles do you find and what, what joy do you find out of it? Well, available to us, you know, given the economics of what it would cost to really do what you say that the professionals do. Um, right. A lot of us buy um, certain microphones that reduce the latency. Um, if you have um, Ethan, Ethernet in your house versus um, Wi-Fi, that helps as well. But there's still latency and not all um, laptops are the same and not all internet <laughs> systems are the same. So mm. as much as we'd like to, we still cannot be able to sing together. So what you will see is individual singing, or gotcha. we, we have some of us like me who uh, I will be accompanied by Steve, but it's a recording that I'm going to be playing at the same time singing. Gotcha. And just just for the uh, the folks uh, like myself who are a little uh, slow on this, so latency, what, what you're talking about, if I understand correctly, is that lag uh, that you can get, which in a meeting with just a few people is either not there or it's not noticeable. But when you've got the chorus, I mean, you've got, I don't know, like 20 people or something like that. Right. I mean, that's, you got a lot of folks. So what you're basically, if I understand correctly, what you're basically doing is you, you are multiplying your technical, I mean, you already have the challenges. If, if all 20 of you are in the same room, you got a certain set of challenges already. And now if I'm understanding you're taking, taking it and multiplying it by some factor, of, of uh, delay with the, with the of latency. 20, of 20. 20, right. 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that, the recording you played in the beginning was a good example of that. It's, you know, tried as we might, we, um, um, we had a member of the groups, um, uh, I think it was a daughter, helped us try to sync it as best she could. And it, it's, it does give a good resemblance of how we perform. So I'm, 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 I'm happy she was able to do that. That's not. That's actually Nadia. Nadia Bruskin. Uh, she's that's, that's uh, yeah, with that, that Jean, Jean Bruskin's daughter. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole family. It's a whole you know in in, in a labor family. We're all we're all family. <laughs> but and, and, and I think it, it seems to me, and I think you're right. That recording is a good example of it. You know, it, it, it there is a just a ton of heart. This is all about heart, right, James? That's correct. That's correct. And I think you said in the beginning, we don't turn anybody away because we're mm -hmm. a community um, chorus. And that's practically true. We will work with you. Um, they worked with me to get me to where I am and where I'm comfortable. Uh, I never performed um, before um, to an audience. Um, I do have one song that I do as a solo, uh, not solo, but I lead the song. Um, or And there are parts of songs that I do sing um, separately. 
but um, I'd never done that before. And working with the chorus and these individuals like Elise, Steve, and Peter, they will get you or anybody else to a level where you'll be comfortable to perform as a chorus with the members. Hey, real quick, how was that first time getting up on stage? <laughs> um, you couldn't see it because I had my dashiki on. <laughs> my underclothes under that dashiki was wet from sweat. <laughs> no doubt. Yes, no doubt. Yeah. No. Well, you're a braver man than I. I, I, I just, uh, you know, it's funny because people are like, oh, you do radio. I don't know. Something about radio is fine. Doesn't bother me at all. Never has. But getting it up in front of a live audience, I, I just totally, you know, the two of you and in the labor chorus, I mean, to me, that that that's the kind of thing I have cold sweats about, baby. I tell you what. You know? Hey, I've been doing it a long time, over 30 years. And the, every now and then, I'll see someone in the audience and it'll just blow me. It might not be, it could be, it could be another guitar player that I respect, or it just could be a face and it'll throw me. And all of a sudden I'll forget a lyric and just freeze for a second. And then you, you, you get that same panic. And what, and you know, what ends up happening is you get over it and you say, oops, mess that one up. Either start again or just let's just plow through. And, you know, in the end, like you said, Chris, it's about pouring out your heart and you sold to people and, and, and using the power of music to hopefully um, at, at the very least entertain and then inform and, 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 and get people active. Uh, and, and of course with the labor chorus, it's, it's a big deal about getting people active in the labor right. community and, and standing up and fighting and resisting and persisting, et cetera. My um, <laughs> sort of like nightmarish event was I sang the second verse first oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then nobody real well the chorus realized that and then i sang the, sang the first they all chorus. laughed at you right right, right. and then and then you know nobody knew it but us but you know at the end they said what happened to you up on the stage so i just I, I just had a blank that's all it was to it hey but I don't you like that first i don't like that first verse i'm never singing it first again. <laughs> i'm just gonna rearrange we're just gonna rearrange that but mm -hmm. But but you say hey look you sang brother I mean right. I mean my my thing would be that I would I, that, that the words would totally desert me and, my, and nothing would come out and that that's that's not a good look so hey hey one one more point on that so on this Sunday concert I had I played this song um, I played this song probably a thousand times absolutely forgot the, the first line and if you forget <laughs> the first line you're done and no. I just made up I made up four lines of lyrics and i looked at the band i said no we're stopping this stopped it and i said sorry everybody moving on to the next scene. so i you know and it's it's can a very popular song into the mystic by van morrison how can you forget the lyrics well you can it happens all I right say one more thing about go ahead, James. um if you go to the facebook page there will also when you register there will be a separate link that will take you to all the songs and all the lyrics of the oh, song excellent so people, That's, it is a sing-along, so we want people to sing along with us. So um, you you will find that information, DC Labor Corps Facebook. It's just like that, and it will come up. Excellent. Well, James Williams, it's a joy to have you on the show. Can't wait to the concert on Saturday. Wherever you are listening to us, folks, that's a great thing. You don't even have to be in D.C. You don't. You know, you can be in your PJs, whatever you want. You can just log on. You can uh, you can stream it on Facebook. You can uh, do it on uh, wherever. You can just do that. So, James Williams, wonderful. Can't wait to see you on Saturday. Thanks for joining us Thank today. You. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank, Thank you, James. You. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Thank you.
All okay. right, you too. Uh, we're going to have a report from Nico in just a second, but if uh, Magic Mike has got our little outro queued up, let's let's have a little bit more labor chorus for us. We'll be right back. I saw Dr. King last night. I said you died long ago. Then he said, no, I ain't dead. I came back because I need you to know. I've seen a new poor people's campaign Mending what's broken To finish what we began And as long as folks have courage like that The world will understand And if you did not come this far To give up now, now Like days of old behind the freedom plan Haven't come this far to give up now. Oh, man. That's that's for DC Labor Chorus again. Their spring concert is going to be this Saturday at 7.30. And uh, really no excuse not to go because it's online. So, you know, grab your uh, favorite uh, adult beverage or whatever and, uh, and check it out. Uh, we'll have a link. Actually, there's a link now on our website, dclabor.org. Uh, click on Calendar. Uh, where you would also have known about an event that happened last night, also virtual, as is everything these days. Uh, and to tell us about it, we've got Nico Belitza from DC Jobs with Justice. Nico, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us about this virtual rally last night and the issue at hand, which I believe has to do with, uh, as uh, Ed was uh, mentioning in a different context, our, our good friends over at the uh, DC City Council. <laughs> Yeah, um, so last, <laughs> last oh. night, uh, DC Jobs of Justice and the uh, Metro Labor Council um, had a virtual rally for the DC Essential Workers Bill of Rights. Um, it was a really great time. I think we had uh, a little bit over 60 folks joining us um, and, uh, you know, staff from a few city council members. So that was really great to see. And we had a kind of great speech from uh, President Diana. Uh, as well as uh, Mr. Robert Hollingsworth from the uh, from AFSCME District Council 20, um, a wonderful musical performance from uh, Doug Rosenthal of the DC Federation of Musicians, and then we also heard from uh, several frontline workers about uh, their experiences as essential workers, both uh, unionized and uh, workers from unorganized sectors. So tell us some more about this uh, Bill of Rights, because I'll be honest, and Ed knows a lot more about this than I do, but uh, honestly, I I kind of assumed a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about in this Bill of Rights, people already had, but, you know, more fool me. Yeah, definitely. So the uh, D.C. Essential Worker Bill of Rights, um, it's not actually a bill per se, uh, so much as it is a set of demands. Um, of the mayor uh, for her upcoming budget that she's going to release on uh, May 27th. So, um, you know, uh, we have this huge transfusion of money um, from the federal government, about $2.5 billion, um, and we are basically asking the mayor to use that money, use all the money that we also have stored away in the rainy day fund to improve the, uh, you know, pay and protections 
for essential workers who have really been putting their lives on the line, um, you know, for a little over a year now, um, you know, during this whole whole pandemic. Um, so yeah, if you'd like, I can kind of just get into all the kind of component parts of the of the Bill of Rights, if you'd be interested. Yeah, once you hit some of the the high points uh, there, and then I'll I'll let Ed do a follow up once you do that. Sure. Yeah. So the we have uh, five demands. Um, the for, the first one is emergency sick leave. So uh, during a state of emergency, uh, we would want essential employers to provide 80 hours of sick leave to be used to isolate, quarantine, or take care of a loved one due to illness or childcare responsibilities. This is basically what was already in place for most of last year through the federal government. Um, right now, there's actually a tax credit that the federal government offers to employers to. Um, to provide that sick leave. So we just want that to be um, required for employers with, uh, with more than 50 employees, um, as well as uh, domestic workers. Um, we want that to be a requirement. Um, and then moving on, we have hazard pay. Um, so during uh, a state of emergency, we, are, uh, we call on the mayor to designate fu a funding source to create a hazard pay program that grants money to DC-based employers to provide hazard pay of $3 per hour to essential workers who earn, earn less than $100,000 per year. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't actually seen um, any, uh, you know, kind of local, uh, we, we haven't seen any kind of uh, mandated hazard pay in the district at all for the duration of the pandemic. And again, now we have this 2.5 billion and we think it's time to make sure that workers get some of that. Um, and then just to, to run through the last three demands, bereavement leave, we want all essential workers to be provided with five days of paid bereavement leave by essential employers during a state of emergency. Uh, presumptive eligibility for COVID-19 workers' compensation. Um, we want it so that essential workers that contract co that contract COVID-19 would be presumed to have contracted COVID-19 uh, through their employment. Um, you know, it only makes sense if you're working at a grocery store, you're on the front lines of the pandemic, and you get COVID-19 that you can, um, you know, file a claim and, and get that kind of long-term support, uh, which a lot of workers need as we increasingly see that COVID has, has long-term side effects um, and long-term symptoms, sorry. Uh, and then finally, higher standards for COVID workplace safety. Um, you know, we've heard this especially from our uh, brothers and sisters in the healthcare sector that uh, we really need to make sure that employers uh, take seriously their responsibility to ensure workplace safety. So requiring high quality PPE, you know, not allowing, uh, you know, reused or, or decon decontaminated PPE. Well, you know, having dealt with this, um, in collective bargaining, having dealt with this in um, attempts to uh, have dialogue with um, the uh, D.C. Uh, mayoral uh, executive team. Um, I want to thank your organization, number one, for really putting together this and building the coalition. Uh, you know, three of those five should be no-brainers, in my opinion. Um, I can see how somebody can fight back on, on Hazard Bay. I mean, it is money. Um, and I can see the workers' comp issue, but the others are no-brainers. So I want to talk about workers' comp. I used to represent cops <clears throat> up in Massachusetts, and there was a law. It was a presumptive presumption. Uh, it, if someone went out on disability retirement due to a heart attack, there was a presumption that the heart attack was caused by the stress of the job as a police officer. So it's analogous to workers' comp claim. Basically, you don't have to, it's because it's a presumption, 
the burden is on the employer to show that there were other factors that uh, made uh, the, the retirement, uh, the disability. And the same would be true here, I think, from a legal standard. What gets me and what gets me uh, rankled very uh, often, um, none of our employers have agreed to this in negotiations with DCNA. And I'm not aware of any union that's been able to negotiate a presumption in workers' comp um, uh, when someone contracts COVID in any healthcare setting. I'm not aware of any union that's been able to negotiate it. And to me, that is very frustrating because I know how hard it is to walk through the valleys and the peaks of uh, filing a workers' comp claim just as, as a normal course of business. Um, and, and the fact is, most employers are going to say, hey, you could have caught it anywhere. You can't prove it. Yeah, just because we didn't give you PPEs, and we gave you the right PPEs, they'll tell you. But, but okay, if there's a problem here, uh, you most likely got it on the train ride home or the car, you know, somewhere, you know, in the grocery store or with your family, with your kids. You didn't get it here. And I want you to kind of respond, number one, why that is just unjust and why your organization feels so strongly about the workers' comp uh, um, demands, if you will. And, and, and secondly, how is that going with leaders in the D.C. Council? How, what kind of support are you getting? Yeah, um, definitely. So, uh, yeah, you know, this uh, and, and also just to kind of uh, add, you know, this, this kind of document was this, this uh, set of proposals was put together by a really broad coalition of unions, and, and that's kind of where we, we drew on uh, a lot of these different ideas. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, presumptive eligibility uh, for workers' comp is really important because, again, we're increasingly seeing that long COVID is a reality and that folks are struggling with those, those long-term symptoms, and there's, there's no real mechanism in place to ensure that workers can, you know, get support to recover from that. Um, you know, even if we do get two weeks of sick leave, I mean, that's not going to be enough for um, some of these long-term symptoms and making sure that folks can pay their bills or, or take time off to, to sufficiently recover from that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's just common sense. You know, if you work at a place uh, that is on the front lines of a pandemic that was, you know, kind of um, a, a grocery store in, in D.C. during, uh, you know, the height of the pandemic, or even still now, you know, UFCW, uh, the the international uh, just or sorry the the national office just released uh, some great statistics about how members are still continuing to um, contract COVID nineteen um, and they need time off to uh, to get a vaccine as well you know this is an ongoing pandemic and we need to make sure that folks can get both the short term and the long term support that they need to uh, to recover um, and in terms of reception um, yeah we're we're pretty focused on the mayor right now because we really want her to uh, fold this into her budget proposal. Um, we think that's the best way to get this done. Um, and I mean kind of the other side of this, we want to get this stuff done, but we also want to get it done you know as soon as possible. We think it's very kind of uh, a lot of this is overdue, <laughs> very overdue. We've been in this pandemic for a while. Um, and now we have that two point five billion. So um, you know we really want to make sure that the mayor leverages all that federal funding. Um, to to kind of uh, yeah uh, you know support essential workers, um, but yeah we have heard some um, kind of support from uh, different council members and uh, it does seem like you know there is there is a lot of uh, grassroots support as well. We had uh, over 400 folks 
sign our uh, petition um, to the mayor on this. I think it's getting closer to 500 now. Um, so there's definitely support across the district, uh, you know, in multiple sectors um, and uh, kind of in, in multiple different communities. And we hope that the, uh, the mayor kind of hears all this and, and takes it into account as she uh, releases her, before she releases her budget on the 27th. Well, you know that DCNA supports you and supports this. Chris? No, it's just, uh, it just it's, a, it's a lot of demands, and we know the mayor, and we know the council. So, you know, you've got the, you know, you've got the Metro Council back in you. You've got a lot of, you know, support there. DC Jobs with Justice has a pretty darn good track record on this stuff. But, I mean, like anywhere, I always get worried when there's large pots of money available, you know, <laughs> it gets a little hairy. So, you know, we've got your back, brother. Keep us posted. Uh, I got to say, great event last night. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud of uh, the voices here on this show, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the, some of the folks that you had on last night, uh, including from, from Council 20, just really strong voices and really good to hear those voices of, of working people. Um, so we're, we're definitely happy to, to help get that out. Nico Belisa, always good to have you on. Uh, keep fighting, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's Nico Belisa, DC Jobs with Justice. Uh, up next for our last segment, I'm very glad. I believe he's just out of the classroom. Um, and his, uh, I hope I don't mispronounce his last name, Gabriel Winant. Uh, what's a Winant? Winant, right? Did I get it right, Gabe? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> okay. Uh, a man who I can see on my Zoom screen here has more books than I do in his library. Wow, I am really. Amazing. He's assistant professor at the University of Chicago, or um, as it says on his Twitter account, hand upon the dollar, eye upon the scale. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you. Nice to be here. So you've got a book, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Uh, I should tell you, my co-host, uh, Ed here, works with the D.C. Nurses Association, was so excited uh, to have you on this, obviously, an issue near and dear uh, to his heart, uh, but talk about you know this is there's a real change going on um, in the American workforce, and I think exacerbated or exposed or something you know by what's going on with the pandemic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book, uh, this title is you read the subtitle. The title is the next shift. I got to plug it, and um, and uh, it's it's it, it takes a close look at. Pittsburgh as a way of understanding this much larger change in in our in our labor market. A lot of people, I think, don't have it totally wrapped their heads around this fact. The largest sector, the largest industry in the U.S. labor market is healthcare. Uh, it's about one in seven jobs nationwide, and you know, in a lot of our kind of big northern Midwestern industrial cities, it's more than that. Uh, so in Pittsburgh, which I studied, it's like 18, 19% of all jobs, so almost one in five. Um, in the Bronx, which is a bit for among big cities anywhere, uh, ranks the highest on this count. It's 25% of all jobs are in healthcare and social assistance. So it's a lot of people. Home healthcare workers, the fastest growing cat job in the country, has been for years. It will be for the foreseeable future. And, you know, you might think of doctors or maybe nurses or something like this, like, you know, RNs as the uh, when you think of healthcare, 
but it's a, there's a lot of low wage work, even for nurses who are, you know, relatively well paid within this industry. So a lot of understaffing and stress and insecurity on the job. COVID made all of that much more obvious, you know, intensified, especially the occupational hazard um, and the stress and the understaffing issues. And so the growth of this industry is really tightly connected to the larger growth of inequality in our society. Um, and, you know, we have to understand it, to understand one, to understand the other. Let me go to Ed Smith, because, I mean, he's somebody, as I said, he works with the D.C. Nurses Association and is well aware of exactly what you're talking about with this. And, and I'm sorry, I, I jumped right to your subtitle. It is the great uh, title, The Next Shift, which I, I love as a title of a book. But go ahead, Ed. Gabriel, thanks for uh, coming on. And yes, uh, Chris is right. I was especially interested in this segment of the, uh, the show. Not that I wasn't interested in the prior segments, <laughs> which I definitely was. But, um, you know, one of the concern, the biggest concern is exploitation of uh, the lower paid um, paraprofessional. Uh, a lot of these home health uh, workers, uh, companies are going to hire um, non-licensed personnel to do most of the jobs and and give short shrift to RN care, doctor care, psychiatric care, etc. cetera. Uh, and then you take a look at the, the massive increase of for-profit companies that have taken over the industry and, and, and really uh, have devastated hospitals, that are, urban hospitals that serve the, the, the poor. Um, when I take a look at these... Uh, for-profit industries, you look at the amount of money these CEOs are making, it is disturbing, distressing, disgusting. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on any of that. I mean, it's that probably don't have a lot of time in this segment, probably need like a five-hour uh, lecture series, but uh, exploitation and the rise of the um, for-profit companies and, and how does that affect the actual care that people get? Yeah, it's a really important question. So here's what I what I like to say about this: uh, healthcare. An issue with healthcare is that it's not like making cars or making steel, which my book talks a lot about steel in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, you, there are reasons that you can't like steadily wring more productivity out of a worker. You know, you can't necessarily easily get more care per hour out of a worker in the way that you can kind of get, you know, 0.1 more cars out of a worker per hour in the, in the auto industry every year or whatever. And even if you can, and, you know, healthcare employers, managers try to figure out ways of doing this, but, you know, you don't necessarily want that, right? Because it, it, that manifests as degradation of the quality of the care. Um, now, what that means, that sets up, uh, if you're going to have a privatized healthcare system like we do, which we shouldn't, but we do, um, that sets up a zero-sum trade-off between profits and wages, right? Um, and, you know, at some level, that's why we have a privatized system. I mean, I like to tell people, uh, any, you know, any job any of us have ever had, right, that you've seen your, at some point your boss has brought in a subcontractor and subcontracted some part of work, some part of the work. Well, why does your boss do that? We all know the answer, right? Subcontractors, what their job is, is to do some part of the work, at a, you know, for less, right? That's how they, that's why they get the bid. The whole healthcare industry is a subcontractor. The whole thing, every hospital, every nursing home, every home care company, it's a subcontracted way of providing a core fundamental social service that makes us a society, that holds together society. But it's not cheap. 
because it's a lot of labor and you can't make it that much more efficient. And so we subcontracted it through this private system. And then within that system, uh, the actors who, who could figure out how to hold wages down and drive prices up most effectively have done the best. Um, so that's given us this dynamic where the people who are rewarded or the companies and the firms that are rewarded are not the ones who provide the best care. They're the ones who provide the cheapest care, uh, right? That's how subcontractors get rewarded. And that has led to this nightmare of for-profit healthcare, which you know, we've seen in its most obscene form in, I think this year, in long-term care, uh, which is you know a totally predatory industry that has, I mean, killed tens of thousands of people. I mean, does even outside of the pandemic, and it got worse this year, obviously. So we're just about out of time, uh, Gabriel, but just a, a quick question, because, you know, one of the things that you raise, and, and I, I'm doing it, Ed Smith, and asking a really big question, you know, with 60 seconds left, but, you know, basically you talk about how, you know, potentially there's a huge amount of political and economic power in this sector because of the numbers and because of the needs. Just, do you have, like, 60 seconds worth of comment on that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, so I said a second ago, healthcare, you know, it's a core social service. It sort of makes us a society in some way, right? Um, like education, like other kinds of fundamental social services. And that means that we're bound to each other through it, right? Um, but it's because it's privatized. Uh, we don't experience that as kind of connection among us. We can experience it as like stress to get the care we need or stress to get the wages we need if we work in the industry. Um, so if you think about all of the people who are caught up in this system as patients, as family of patients, or loved ones of patients, and, you know, in the millions as workers who have to take care of those people, there's a lot of shared potential common interest in a more humane and democratic healthcare system that can unite those millions and millions of people around a different vision of healthcare and of society at some level, you know, I mean, to change healthcare would be to change everything. Um, and I think there's real pressures that are working to prevent that unity, but real pressures that could bring it about too. And I think that's a really important political task for us to figure out. I would, I would love to continue this conversation at a later time. I mean, it springs to mind Medicare for all, but as Chris said, we got to finish this show because got another show coming up. All right, Gabriel, thank you so much for being with us. We'll definitely have you back on a lot more to dig into, but the, uh, the book uh, you're going to want to check it out. The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. Gabriel Winant, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Rights at Work from me and Ed Smith. Uh, Mighty Mike Nacella was uh, engineering for us today. Really appreciate that, Mike, keeping all the bells and whistles going. Uh, we will be back next week, same time. Really appreciate you listening. Stay tuned to WPFW 89.3 FM. Take care, everybody. This is a public service announcement.